Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons or sermons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Amy Peeler. Amy Peeler is no stranger to the show. She's been on uh, a few times, handful of times over the last couple of years. I always love having her on the show. She's a dear old friend and a fantastic New Testament scholar and theologian at Wheaton College. She actually just has a book that just came out called Women and the Gender of God uh, that engages with a number of issues and in texts, including the story of Christ's birth and the virgin birth in Mary's womb that is, in fact, the text that we are looking at this week. She and I are going to be discussing Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which is the reading for the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas. As you're listening to the show today, if you're finding yourself enjoying it, just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice and send this out to others so that they can enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find out ways there you can become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. All right, so Matthew 1, verses 8 through 25. Would you be willing to read it? Any version of your choice? I'll go with the NRSV. That's what I have open this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your son, Jesus, and for this mysterious way in which he came into the world, and for the faithfulness of the human beings involved. And so, Father, as we explore this very familiar text, open up our eyes to see what you wish us to see, to hear what you wish us to hear, and open up the hearts of all those listening in that they may encounter the Word of God afresh so that they too, in their own way, may be bearers of the Word for the sake of the world. We ask this all in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Amy, thanks again for uh, doing the Matthew 1, 18 through 25 with us. This is this year assigned uh, in the lectionary for the fourth Sunday of Advent, so kind of the Sunday before Christmas, which is in fact 
on a Sunday this year. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, no pressure, but uh, I'm sure we'll have some listeners, whether they're lectionary followers or not, they will be preaching or teaching on this text in the upcoming weeks when this lands. So uh, it's a good text to look at afresh and see what it is we need to see there. So what do you see when you look at it with fresh eyes today? What's uh, what's jumping out at you? What, what are some things that, that stir in you as you look at at this story? Uh, what a great question. Actually, I am recalling that I am up to preach that weekend. So, uh, and I've not yet started, but I will be right along with all the listeners who are doing their prep for this text. Fantastic. I did not know that. That, that happened just live right now. As we exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. And I didn't even give you a choice. I didn't even say which one you want to do. Cause sometimes I do. And you pick the one cause you're like, Ooh, I'm up that week. Exactly. <laughs> no, it works out perfectly. I, I got the lottery this time. I got to preach Advent one and I'll preach Advent four. And so that is, uh, it is my favorite time of year. So what a joy. Oh, wow. Something new. You know, I have studied this text both by teaching it and writing on it a great deal. And so it is a very meaningful text. A lot of the things that discoveries that I've made over the years kind of jump out. But as I was reading it, I just was struck maybe afresh with Joseph's obedience. And so when uh, it's there in verse 24, when Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. And I have long reflected on the cost that that was for Joseph. There's a bit of a debate about if people would have been aware of Mary's pregnancy and how people viewed pregnancy within the time of engagement. There's a, some literature there from different Jewish sources that lead to some, you know, uh, doubts. I think what can be known for certain is that because Joseph knows that this is not his child, his willingness to take Mary in is an incredible act of grace, both protecting her, uh, giving her a space for the child to grow and develop in safety, but a willingness that if anyone does raise questions about timing, that he's willing to take that on and I noticed that when Matthew introduces him in 19, Joseph, a man who is righteous, and I see this as a way of transforming the reader's understandings of righteousness, because I think initially Joseph's righteousness is, I'm going to do what the law says, and I'm going to do it in a kind way, like I'm going to end this relationship. She has been unfaithful from what he could perceive, and so I don't want any part of that. But yet, instead of exposing her publicly, I'll do so quietly. But then his righteousness is transformed to be one in which he says, whatever her shame might be, whatever questions might be raised, I'll take that on. And to me, that seems the kind of divine righteousness that is revealed in Christ, not to remain distant from sinful humanity, but to take our sin, our shame upon himself. Joseph gets to practice that kind of Christological righteousness, I think, in this paragraph. Wow. Yeah. So then there's there's almost kind of three layers of justice there. The first is to do what's right according to law would be step one, but that could be done harshly right, or done with, with according to the spirit of the law that actually cares about people and how it affects them. So that's that next level we already get before the dream is his willingness to do it quietly just to prevent her from shame or potentially violence that could take place. 
But then, like you said, then there's that third level. So it's not just, you know, a kind justice, but even a kind of a humble, radical justice that humbly takes on the risk of injustice. (laughs) Exactly. And readers, I'm sure, are aware that that first level, doing the law, according to Deuteronomy, which you have a lot of verbal parallels here, if a woman is found to be with child while she's engaged, you bring her before the the town council and have her stoned. So really, death would be the law. And then he, he, that's not widely practiced, it seems, in the first century. And so the next level would be kind of a public exposure, but not death. And then he goes the route of quietly putting her away, but still putting her away. I have my students reflect on where would she have ended up if Joseph hadn't been obedient? Her betrothal is cut off because she is with child and he says that child is not mine. And so by everyone's perception, she has been unfaithful. Uh, That still leaves her in a very precarious position. Now, maybe her parents would have said, okay, we'll take you in. We believe you. She would still be living with her parents, correct? Exactly. She had not yet gone to his household. That's right. But But they're practically married. He would be able to visit her. And you said there's some debate in the literature whether a pregnancy, if it was his, whether that would be kind of maybe frowned upon, but not a big deal. What? I'm, I'm just curious. Oh, sure. Sure. So yes. So hey, let's, uh, let's do the wedding a little earlier than we were planning. Exactly. You know, kind of. exactly. So betrothal would have been a formal ceremony, often even an exchange of money. Like it has a bit more formality than our engagements, uh, but it is parallel. But then yes, there would have been some kind of relationship or at least they could kind of, you know, visit one another, I guess, before the woman moved into the household of the man. Some Jewish writers say there absolutely should be no sexual intercourse in betrothal. And then if it happens, it's a sin. Others are like, well, if they're already betrothed, that's no big deal. Lynn Kohick does a pretty good job in her chapter on marriage in the um, uh, world of the earliest Christian women uh, historical book of, of giving that different conflicting evidence. So I think a modern understanding, especially those of us like myself who grew up in you know, a a very kind of strict purity culture with regard to sexuality before marriage, our sense is, oh my goodness, this would have been the greatest scandal of the world. And if it was Joseph's child, that's not totally clear if that would have been true or not. But as I said, he says, this is not mine. And so that is as scandalous as we imagine it and more so the way that adultery was considered then. Yeah, so he's basically functioning in the community as saying, yeah, yeah, this is mine. And so there might be some minor shame. If if anyone wondered, like you said, about the timing, again, it doesn't, we don't know how is she showing. Yeah, Matthew, we, we would have to kind of map this onto Luke's time frame, which is more precise, but we, we don't we don't get any of that data here. Yeah, if all you had in front of you was Matthew, you really wouldn't have a clarity of timeline here. Right. Okay. Right. We do have something in our North American lingo that has some point of connection. And that's the phrase of a shotgun wedding, right? The notion of, okay, it is okay if it's this couple, as long as I get married real quick, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Make an honest woman out of her to use a phrase, right? Again, I mean, these are, even those are kind of out of date tropes nowadays, but, but at least it, it captures at least some of the sense that of the complexities here. Yeah. So where she, would she have ended up? Aaron's could have kept her in. They might have cast her out. Right. She might have moved somewhere else. What are some of the other possibilities that you guys bump into when you do that thought experiment in class? 
I was taught by our common professor, Beverly Gaventa, that this is the first place that Matthew is working with the themes of danger and death in his narrative. I mean, the threat of death were Joseph to take the full Deuteronomic law and punish her for her adultery, but then also just the precarious nature of um, if she were exposed by her parents. And if we think about Nazareth as a really small village, I mean, we kind of know in small spaces that everybody knows everybody else's business. <laughs> and so if Joseph broke this engagement, that would have been apparent to everyone. And then, of course, as she starts to show, the reason why it would have become so very clear. So I think what we can say with clarity is that she would have been left really with a very dismal life and even a threat on her life if her parents said, we don't want you in our household either. We, of course, don't know anything about her family directly from the New Testament. The early Proto-Evangelion of James has a lot to say about her parents. And um, my sense is that they would be faithful people with given her sense of faithfulness and knowledge of scripture. But we don't know much about them. I have wondered before, and I recognize this is provocative, but Matthew, you know, includes the four women in his genealogy, all of whom have some kind of question marks around sexuality in their story, uh, several of whom are explicitly prostitutes. Uh, Rahab and Tamar have to take those steps for survival. I asked a friend uh, once about kind of first century Nazareth, and there, of course, aren't any remains of brothels there, but there are in nearby more Greco-Roman areas. Is he suggesting that if Mary were exposed, often women, right, turn to this as a means of survival? I know that's quite provocative, but it does for me get emphasis on the sense of danger, shame, that might have hung over her. And and again, we have Joseph's story here, but I think uh, the themes of shame and risk are very much present in Luke as well. She does not say yes to the incarnation lightly. She has a sense of what this could cost her. And I think that's important to give some grit to this narrative that uh, is so often repeated and kind of, you know, made saccharine uh, so for our celebrations of Christmas to recover that danger, I think, is quite important to our understanding of the incarnation. Oh, that thought of our Lord being raised in a brothel, like you said, provocative. <laughs> and, and I think especially with Catholic interlocutors, I am treading upon, right, this is, yeah. um, and I, I never say it in order to cause offense, but many scholars have wondered why Matthew chooses to include these uh, complicated stories, to say the least. I just, my thought had gone in that direction as a possibility. And it also teaches me compassion, which uh, yeah. those who work for, say, IJM or something like that are so good at teaching us. Women who are in those situations are not there 99% of the time by will for choice or sinfulness. They're there to survive. And yeah. that's an important thing to remember. Yeah. And so I guess that puts a fine point on having mentioned Luke, why it actually is really crucial for the story to also get Joseph's perspective because his choices here are the difference between two very different earthly destinies. Yes. And of course, like you point out, it's a speculative question. It's a provocative one, but it's a speculative question. And a speculative question is intended not to then get a life of its own, but in order to draw us back to the text to see what's at stake, right? And so it brings us back to say, 
how crucial it was that God in his wisdom elects not only Mary as the fitting bearer of this son, but also elects Joseph right. as the one who's going to make the right choice when given the opportunity and the vision to do so. But also the necessity of the vision, because it's not the choice he would is going to make. Right, right. He's going to make a just and merciful Mm-hmm. He was, was going to have a merciful uh, execution of justice, right? but the result would have been very, very different. Yeah. So raising that provocative question helps us really see what's at stake in the text and why Joseph has a role to play. Mm-hmm. He's not just a bystander mm-hmm. tagging along, right? Exactly, exactly. Which cause sometimes how it feels in Luke, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> and that's the even, focus, the Luke, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but even it strikes me, I mean, Luke mentions him, right? In the Annunciation scene, Gabriel is sent to a virgin who is betrothed mm-hmm. to a man with the name of Joseph from the house of David. So there's such resonance in how he is introduced by both evangelists. And I love that sense of, you know, the question is often raised, why Mary? Like, why this young woman? And, and maybe part of that story is not just her propensity for faithfulness that God in, you know, a prevenient wisdom and grace could see, but also her relationship with Joseph, that he would be the kind of man to respond correctly. Uh, and of course, you know, being named Joseph is a echo, a connection to the dreamer of the Old Testament who saw visions and dreams and responded. And here too, Joseph is given a vision and responds. So. Ooh, that's a perfect place to take a break and come back and let's, let's talk about the dream when we get back. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. So prior to the break, you mentioned the Joseph connection, who's famous for his dreams. And we get a dream here, which then recurs. We get quite a few dreams then in chapter 2. It's it's clearly a motif in the, the story in general here, both the Magi and I think Joseph gets another dream. So let's just zoom in on the dream for a moment. So as he was considering this, which is a interesting phrase anyway, right? So while he's, so he's not acting quickly, he's thinking about it, coming up with a plan. Behold, and that might be our first behold, which Matthew has lots of. Mm. Is that the first behold in the whole book of Matthew? I think that could be right. Yeah. There's a lot of firsts that are just of interest and and we'll be doing a lot of Matthew this year because it's year A and the, so, so these general themes are just fun to notice. But anyway, so behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary your wife as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, which is already a, not to be cute, but a pregnant phrase. Um, <laughs> that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then I'll stop there, although we know that Matthew then, this is the first prophecy mm-hmm. fulfillment moment in Matthew, which is something he's known for as well, to say all this happened too. And he that's his, we know from the rest of the book of Matthew that that's, that the quote ends in 21 
And this isn't the angel talking. This is now the narrator talking. But if you hadn't read the rest of Matthew, you might think, Oh, that's true. The angel, the angel saying, and this is, don't worry. This is all according to prophecy. Of course, angels don't need to appeal to prophecy. So there's no need for that. Angels kind of can speak for themselves, but it's not obvious who's talking that that's the narrator interjecting again. Because of the rest of Matthew, we know it is because there's not an angel every time. So it's clearly narrator then kicks in there. But anything in this dream, again, it's not described. What is described is not, even though it's an appearance, an apparition, we don't get any detail of what the visual experience then is. Although in that, it shares a lot with the Old Testament way of narrating, right? We just get the content of what he says. So it's a word from the Lord through the vision of an angel. Anything about that, that experience, that event, or these words that you want to highlight for us? I think it is a good reminder for contemporary readers, and maybe, you know, different traditions would have more or less comfort with this, but that God so frequently has worked with people through non-seemingly rational things, right? There wasn't kind of he went and studied the law or, I mean, not that those are conflictual with one another, but he's willing to make a major life decision because of this kind of vision. So the, the prominence of the supernatural in the lives of those in the first century, God's people, I think it's always a good reminder for us also to be open to God doing something not according to what is normally experienced for us. And again, I think Wesleyans or those who are part of Pentecostal traditions are much more practiced at these skills than some others. Uh, but that's not something to be skipped over too lightly, I think. An angel appearing in a dream. Behold, pay attention to this. Yeah. This is an angel appearing in a dream. Angel of the Lord, even that has very uh, biblical resonances, that phrase. Well, I mean, I guess it fits in some ways that I mean, whatever rational revelation could be offered Joseph, it will ultimately be directed towards a very supernatural and mysterious exactly. thing oh, that's here. Well so yes. so he, he's stuck with the supernatural either way. So might as well have supernatural means for a supernatural subject matter. Because the child which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. There, there's no natural or reason there. <laughs> this is unparalleled, never before, never again. And so, yeah, that's actually very resonant that it would also be a supernatural means. I love how you've said that. That's helpful. Yeah. So just camping on that a little bit, just to get your exegetes hat on for a little bit. If we didn't have Luke and we didn't have later tradition of using this precise phrase conceived by the Holy Spirit in our tradition, again, I believe in all that stuff. I'm just saying, just the text as it sits in front of us. Is that the only way to read that phrase? What is conceived in her is of, ek, pneumatos agio, right? So of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't know. There's things that I'm just talking here. Oh, sure. Being provocative again. Sure, you know, like, sure. I could speak of something natural. Exactly. As being of the Holy Spirit. That means it's in accordance with, right. or this isn't an evil thing that's happening. Whatever happened here, whoever the daddy is, this is of the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. I no. mean, is that a possible reading? Is is that strict kind of virgin, not virgin birth, because this isn't birth yet, the virginal conception? Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that being explicitly 
taught here or only hinted at? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? What a fantastic question. And I've really enjoyed being challenged by scholars who ask just that, like, how can we get to the text itself without the layers of tradition? What does it really say? Probably most beneficial for me has been a book called Born of a Woman? Question mark by Andrew Lincoln, who reads the entire birth narrative from a rigorous historical standpoint and is asking, is this really what it says? Now, fascinatingly, I think you're precisely right that if all we had was verse 20, it definitely could be the case, even going back to the charges of Celsus against Christianity, that, oh, your Lord, actually, his mother was raped by a Roman soldier, Pantera. I mean, this is one of the early rumors or uh, stories that are told against Christians. So it could be that that's what happened. But the angel says, but this is still blessed by the Holy Spirit. Even some modern authors uh, have entertained that possibility. Again, it's a bit of an argument from silence. But I think what is exegetically impossible is that verse 20 takes place after verses 16 and 17. And so I would encourage preachers, I know you have 18 through 25 here, But if you've not just recently done some kind of sermon on the genealogy, it really is to the benefit of your listening audience to go back. And there in 16, we get the repetition of the structure that has happened since verse 2. You actually have the repetition of 41 names. Jacob begets Joseph, but in 16, the structure changes. Joseph doesn't beget Jesus, but Joseph is then named as the husband of Mary, and you get the ek again. Ex hace agenethe Jesus. From her, Jesus was born, the one who is called the Christ. And so joining verses 16 Two verses 20, even Lincoln, who has presented a rigorous argument for a possibility that Matthew is working with a natural conception, not a supernatural one, concludes in the end that the best way to read the text and only the text is virginal conception. Wow, that's powerful. Now, that verse 16 is really crucial. So if you're in a church that's kind of following a lectionary, or even if not, typically there's a little break there. At verse 18 in most Bibles, it's very common to start at 18. And there's nothing wrong with that in terms of the reading. Of course. I mean, often you can't, you can't read all the texts that you're going to preach from as the sermon unfolds. But I think a reference back to 16 is extremely helpful in that regard. Yeah, because he does not beget. So if you've said beget 41 40 times yeah. and then he yeah. suddenly doesn't. Exactly. Exactly. That's not on accident. Precisely. And it's the same. I mean, for the fathers, this preposition, ek, was really, really important. Uh, I love reading Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, because from the Holy Spirit is the way in which the affirmation that this is truly the Son of God, and then from her, uh, ex haste, that is truly where Christ has his tether to and receives his humanity is from her. And so those become very weighty statements in the development of Christological doctrine. I see. So you're saying that verse 16 and verse 20 both use the same preposition, ek, out of, by, from, for Mary in 16 and for Holy Spirit in 20. So you kind of have the two sources 
corresponding to the humanity and de- deity again. And that's, that's definitely later development. I don't think that's on Matthew's mind. Maybe it is, but I don't think he's thinking it through exactly in not, those not terms. Not in those but, kind of strict categories. Although I'm the kind of New Testament reader that does, that wouldn't be a leap for me to say that he might, he, he doesn't have Chalcedon's specificity, but I think he gives the seed for it on this very page. So. <laughs> Yeah, no question. The seeds there, right? Uh, just not fully grown. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, right. All of our pregnancy, uh, <laughs> pregnancy uh, uh, phrases today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I see what I see where you're getting at. The ek, the two x, the from, and the conceived. It's interesting. For that which is, it's it's Ganethen, and then in. It's agonethei. So these are the same verb in both 16 and 20, right? Or am I missing something? No, that's right. Okay. Uh-huh. And the that which, that which is conceived in her, that translation mm-hmm. that I was using was just simply because you would speak of a child, a technone is a neuter, right? So I do kind of like how he mentions like right away. She will bear a son. Like, I can't get around that. Like, we just take it for granted, but it's like, they don't know. He wouldn't have known the gender, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. I'm I'm guessing Joseph had other things on his mind, but I'm sure it didn't hurt that the angel had a little sweet in here. By the way, it's a boy. Exactly, exactly. Right. Which is precisely what, I mean, Mary gets the same specificity, right? Even the name Jesus. It does strike me. We were just talking about the dream of Joseph and and it made me go and look. When you look at the Annunciation in Luke 1, Gabriel comes to her and God directs this messenger to the village of Nazareth to her. And so there's, you know, I, I, uh, I want to both celebrate and honor the work that Joseph does, but I do think there is a difference in degree. <laughs> and so, you know, Big he time. gets a dream and an angelic vision that's important, but she gets a direct visit from God's messenger to her place, to her space. And then, yeah, the, the one who is born, they both get enough information to know. I mean, and think about the ancient world, the high rate of uh, mortality, both for conceived children, as well as for mothers. I mean, there's an overcoming, there's a promise here that Mary and Joseph aren't going to struggle with uh, infertility. I recognize that Jesus is not that example here because it's not Joseph, but they're going to have a child that lives. It's going to be a boy. And then Mary, of course, is given the promises that he will reign upon the throne of his father, David. This are messianic hopes. So they get a lot of information, actually. Yeah, whereas Joseph gets a pretty, just a brief, for he will save his people from from their sins. That's right. Which is riffing even off the name Jesus. Yes, yes. Yeah, he definitely gets less information. He gets it in the form of a dream. I completely agree that Joseph's not a bystander, but he is not the main character of this story. <laughs> and, so, and to me, I, um, I mean, I'm, I, I think it's an interesting question to think about order of synoptics. I think it makes good sense that Luke had access to this material and then said, "Oh, this is this is a great story, and we also must tell her side as well." And so those really complement one another. And it fits then, I mean, I, I feel like that theory would fit, again, whether he has access to Matthew or not, at least that he has the tradition. access to the same traditions enough that, because his is just so much more expansive. You get so much more chronology, so many details. I mean, 
even deciding when you're like, I actually have my gospel parallel, my Alon parallel book out. And it's, it's even hard to know like what to sit next to this passage because it's kind of enunciation and birth all in one in, you know, six verses because you really get basically no narrative actually of the, until the last line. Basically, verse 25 exactly. is parallel to what we call the, quote, Christmas story in Luke 1, 1 through 20, right? Just that one line. Exactly. <laughs> Knew her not until she'd born a son, and he called his name Jesus. I mean, that gets all the way to the end of chapter 2 of Luke, right? You know, you get to the naming scene and everything. So, I mean, all of Luke 2 is, is in a way just midrash on verse 25, right? Yes, that's a great way to see it. So, I think that fits. I mean, it wouldn't make generally – in the ancient world or at any time, things tend to expand, right? The director's cut isn't shorter than the one you saw in the theater, right? It's got extra stuff in it. Here's all the extra scenes that fill it out. That's a great comparison, right? Yeah, well, I guess that actually presents then the question about how do you preach on this passage, especially given the weight of other texts, how to stay focused on it. So let's take a quick break and then come back and explore that some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we are looking at Matthew 1, verse 18 through 25. Uh, At least initially here, we're thinking about the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas. This is a text suggested for that time, and turns out that Amy's preaching on that very passage. So so what are you going to preach on in a couple of weeks here? <laughs> Before our listeners, it'll be six days later, but you, we, we're working a little bit ahead, although not too far. Ahead. Not too far. Not too so far. yeah, where, uh, where do you go with this? I know you've, I mean, you've written a whole book on this stuff uh, quite literally. So, but you know, when you're preaching a sermon, it's got to be focused. You can't cover as much as a book. So I don't know where, what, what's your angle? What's your hook? Where, where do you think you want to go with this? I am struck by our earlier conversation. I do think it would be of high value to reflect on the person of Joseph. I think any sermon that can turn these characters, these literary characters into three-dimensional human beings is incredibly helpful, not just kind of generally so that we can follow their example, but because the more we do that, the more we affirm the full humanity of, of Christ, right? This, he entered into a real family, a complicated family. And to reflect on some of those things that we talked about, righteousness of Joseph, the dangers that are present here, I, I think that could be really fruitful for reflection on him. Yeah, I really liked what you said. Like he's the kind of person who was ready to receive redirection from God. That says something about his faithfulness before this moment too, because that just doesn't happen right away. I think you have to cultivate those habits of obedience. And it seems like he had done that. I like that phrase, ready for redirection Mm. from God. Mm. Some of us can get paralyzed waiting for God to tell us what to do. And it's like, well, I mean... He's revealed his will in his, in his word. You, we know what to do. You start heading down that road. And then, but yeah, you might get redirected. What it looks like to be faithful to, to his word might look different than you anticipated. But don't kind of just sit around and wait. Because it doesn't say he was you know, <laughs> up late praying, should I do this, Lord? Although there's a little, you know, he was considering this. But right. 
But he had made a decision and he'd made it based yeah. on God's word, right? He had made it based on the law and his people's practice of the law. So we have that too. Like if we're kind of stuck in an indecision, we have God's word for direction, press on in what seems clear, but then be open for God to do something surprising. Another feature that, you know, if a preacher is anticipating that you know, I could imagine a situation in which maybe this this text is the Christmas sermon, and then you could do some of this comparative work that ha- kind of our natural conversation has turned to, do kind of a close reading of Matthew 1 and Luke 1, and compare the angelic visits to Mary and Joseph, put those right next to one another, I think could be fruitful. You don't have to do that. Um, another thing that I really love about this passage and again, this since my professor, Dr. Gaventa, had written a bit on Mary, uh, and she was talking about that while I was a student, I learned, I think, so many of the initial ideas. My initial draw to this was from her. But if you ask the question, like, where is Mary in Matthew? Um, it's relatively minor, right? She doesn't do much. In fact, the only verb of which she is a subject is the verb ticto, to bear. So the only thing she does here is have a child. Joseph does everything else. Joseph, notice we saw in this passage, he names Jesus. He takes her into his house. He's the one in chapter two that moves them to Egypt and moves them back. And people have made the critique that Mary in Matthew is very passive, very uninteresting, but I don't know that that's the best way to read it. If she bears a child, that is no small thing. (laughs) That's actually incredibly important, not just generally, but in this narrative, were that not to happen, were it not for her willingness to do that action, why would we care about the story at all? Joseph wouldn't matter. (laughs) Whatever he did, it would be of no importance. It is centered on birth. And so her presence here may not be a prominent one, but it is a necessary and steady one. I often have pictured this as she is the steady at the center of this drama. She bears him. She nurses him. That's all she does. But if she didn't do that, there would be no story at all. So you could even reflect on the activity or I don't want to use the word passivity, but the steadiness of Mary, the activity of Joseph, the steadiness of Mary in this narrative, that also could be fruitful. And then you wouldn't even need to go to Luke. Yeah, I like that. And the bearer, I mean, it's it's a that's a powerful term because it has theological history, the theotokos, the exactly. God bearer. Tokos being a noun form of what I believe is here, 21, right? Yeah, yeah. Texetai. So I mean it's it's the it's the the verb here connects to that notion of being the bearer. Yes. The bearer of the word made flesh. And yeah, you're right, because there's a lot of these passive verbs like from her he was born, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, and I guess I mean in some ways is from the outside looking in, not that that's Matthew's perspective. But in some ways, he's helping to represent that. From the outside looking in, Joseph is doing all the action. Of course. Right. 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 And so he's the one who, even if we know there was a conversation about who this should be named and maybe a surprise and a delight, like, oh, we both had the same name, right? Right. Right. We know that at least in a, in a kind of public and legal way, it would have been him that would have filled out the forms, as it were. Not that they did it that way, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not the, the legal status of, of women in that time would have made it so that he's the one who's, 
has to make all of these decisions, at least in the public way, whatever's going on inside their relationship. And there is something not to then make those then linked to gender and what you have to be, but just as human beings, you know, sometimes there's someone who's seems to be doing all the activity. I think that could be really helpful. And, you know, I probably as a preacher, I wouldn't get into the territory of debates about gender, but if one felt a freedom in that way, I think this is a beautiful reality of the mutual participation in the work. I God the one thing God said about gender is that it's not good that we are alone. <laughs> and and especially in moments of pregnancy, that difference between male and female bodies, like even like there is a need of a woman because a woman is doing that hard work of pregnancy and especially labor and birth to have the support of your partner is is really necessary and a beautiful thing. And so it's not a someone is more important, less important, but there are ways in which the support for or the participation in God's work looks different. Uh, so my, one might feel a freedom to push into that if that could be beneficial for people in your congregation. Yeah, even if it's just a, a side moment. But like you said, depending on yeah, when you're preaching on this, what needs to be highlighted? You don't want to just kind of ignore the contribution of the Luke story. So I loved your insight that you can kind of smuggle some of, if not Luke's information, at least his perspective, kind of sneak that in through that one verb in verse 21. She does get one active verb. Right. right. And it's the biggest active verb. Exactly. It's the verb. Exactly. That <laughs> That's good. That's well said. Yeah. Yeah, so how are you feeling about preaching this in a little while? Do you think uh, you think you'll you'll find a hook between now and then? <laughs> uh, I, I hope so. I mean, God is always so faithful to. I mean, the other piece of preaching, of course, is uh, you know I would also want to think on what are people kind of bringing to the service, right? The last Sunday before Christmas, uh, it's a busy time, but yet some of the activities have ceased, and all the complications of you know, family celebration. So I think people, some people come into that week like, yay, it's almost here. It's so wonderful. And then of course the holidays are an intense time for depression or struggle. And so I probably would spend some time really reflecting on what do people need to hear at this time of year and what is in the text that might respond to that. I think that's perfect, right? I mean, that's the that's a perfect hook for the sermon mm. and for all our listeners, man. Just like this is the family drama into yeah. which Jesus was born, yes. right? Oh, that's so and good. And you can talk about right. and just, you know, talk a little bit about our own, share a story or whatever about some family drama even in your own life. Yeah. And then then just move over into this and do, and again, whether, however provocative you're going to get about some of the speculations we offered earlier, just that three-dimensionality though. Mm, right. And this is why, I mean, I'm with you that you can over-harmonize the Gospels in a way that erases right, distinctive. the insight and perspective, mm -hmm. right? But it's precisely, I mean, the reason why that kind of harmonization, again, that I think creates exegetical troubles, the motivation behind it, I think, comes from the fact that most of Christian teaching for most of Christian history takes place through telling stories and stained glass windows when you're just going to harmonize. Because if you give any three-dimensionality to the character beyond the text, just the words of the text in front of you, 
you will bring in whatever else you happen to know, which might be from another gospel, right? So even though you, you can't let that force your hand in how you interpret the text in front of you, there's no way that that three-dimensionality is not going to be influenced by what we know, you know? Well, I'm struck even, I mean, on that point precisely on verse 20, the child which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is a statement that the Annunciation narrative and her agreement to it has already happened. <laughs> Bingo. And and if you have a doctrine of scripture that says all of this is God's word to us, then there are some necessary gaps that then are filled by the other narrative. Yeah. So that's already happened. She's already bearing this child, you know, and this is this moment when Joseph gets on board. This is the moment when the turn takes place in the particular drama. There's still going to be family drama. Right. You know, it doesn't, right. doesn't just go away. Yeah. And to really come back to, I think what you said earlier, I wonder if the participation of God's son in family drama is a, it's a synecdoche, a part standing in for the whole of just his humanity. Right. Right. So that then a sermon doesn't just have to say, all right, let's talk about how he's fully God, fully, fully human, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of get there, end there. Yes. yes. Just as, you know, we're running around worrying about other people's expectations. Jesus participated in that very kind of drama. He was in it. He knows what it's like. You know, and then I probably would come back to the meanings of his names given here. Jesus, and he will save them from their sins. So often, and especially in, in the current moment, we've been made aware in which sins of previous generations, sins of family impact us. And he entered into that. And that you will call his name Emmanuel. God is present in the midst of it. So I might end, if I started with family drama, talked about the virtues of Joseph, I might then end with, you know, sins is rather broad, but we can say, this is part of what Jesus entered into to restore and redeem. His people, not just persons, individuals, but his people, these generations we've just narrated in the previous part of the chapter, right? Which is full of sins. I mean, like that's what mm -hmm. I was saying earlier about the women. Like they are sinned against <laughs> and Jesus comes to renew that. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a lovely place to, to culminate. Uh, the sermon is in, which is the last line of the angel who is a messenger. So right. he's clearly the character of the preacher in yeah. the story. Oh, that's good. <laughs> he's, right. So that's his last line. So it, maybe it should be ours as well. Right. Yeah. God with us. That's the last thing he says. It, well, it depends if that we think that's the angel still talking. Oh, right. that's true. That's true. <laughs> I guess that's right. right. It is funny. It, it's a little, but that's okay. We can have that ambiguity. Those right. are the two kind of final words, right? The God with us. Well, I mean, that's such a parallel, isn't it? And he will save his people from their sins it might be the last thing that the angel says. And then Matthew says, and God with us. I mean, that's basically a riff. That's the same idea repeated in different words. For what is it for God to be with us other than to enter into our sinfulness and save us from it? Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Instead of thinking those as separate ideas, right? And how is it that he will save our sins? By being with us in them, tasting it for us and overcoming it from within. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm excited. I, I want to hear your sermon. I feel like I'm, I've made a lot of progress. This is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Hey, well, thanks so much, Amy. I appreciated the time you gave uh, to this conversation and to our listeners. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for your production work. Can't imagine doing this show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all our listeners, but especially those who support the show. If you'd like to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash fresh and find ways you can support the show there. Become a patron saint of the show. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>